Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight for this time of reflection and worship. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I'm Pastor Isaiah Jesh. It's my joy to serve and lead the church here. I would love to talk with you this evening. If I um, haven't met you, I would really love to do that. If you are not a Christian, you just want to set kind of your expectations for tonight so you know what we will be doing here. This is a time where we have gathered together to focus very intentionally and very clearly on what it is that would bring people together into this place week after week. What you will hear tonight is at the very heart, the very center of our faith and who we believe Jesus to be and what that means for us and why it is that we would gather in this place. So if you have questions about something you hear tonight or, or something about what that might mean for you, then I want to encourage you, please don't leave tonight without taking the opportunity to ask those questions, to come and talk with me about those things. Tonight will be a very focused evening. It's a more somber service that we're about to enter into. On Sunday morning, our day is going to be filled with a lot of excitement, a lot of joy and celebration. And so I want you to be a part of tonight. I'm glad that you're here, and I want you to be a part of Sunday morning as well. Our day will start here on Sunday morning at our usual time, which is 9 a.m. We'll have coffee and conversations, and it'll be a nice time to enjoy some breakfast treats and talk with one another. At 9.30, we will have Sunday school classes, Bible classes for all ages, talking about what it is that that we believe and what is happening on Easter Sunday. And then at 10.30, we'll gather together in this room to worship together. We'll sing with great joy and there'll be excitement. And then after about an hour and 15 minutes or so, we'll dismiss this service and we'll encourage you to hang out with us for a little bit. We'll have an Easter egg hunt outside, a good chance to talk with people and experience some joy and celebration on Sunday morning. So I want to encourage you to come be a part of those things and share that important day with us as we celebrate the meaning of our faith and what Jesus has done. Before we get there, we need to find out why Sunday is so significant in our faith. So if you have your Bible with you tonight, I'm going to encourage you to grab that. Turn to the book of Matthew. If you don't have your Bible with you, you're welcome to use one in the pew in front of you. In fact, I'll tell you it's page 989 that we will be on if you're using one of our pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, uh, let me tell you I'd love to give you one. Come see me tonight. I will give you a Bible, or you can take the one from the pew in front of you. I want you to have a copy of God's Word so you can see this story for yourself. We're going to read quite a bit of scripture tonight. I'm going to explain to you what's going on from the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew, he gives us nearly two chapters worth of details about what happens on this night we're about to look at. Mark and Luke and John and their gospel accounts give us even more information. And so there'll be points tonight where I'm going to summarize the story. But if you have your Bible in front of you, you can look there and you can read through the text. and You can see it from the words of God himself. In Matthew 26... We're going to pick up the story on Thursday night. Jesus and his followers have just celebrated what is called the Passover meal. We'll come back to that at the end of this evening. We read of, after having celebrated the Passover meal, they go out to the Mount of Olives. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, we begin the story tonight. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. 
Where we start this story tonight, with these words of Jesus, they were hard for the disciples to hear. The disciples are the, the closest followers and friends of Jesus, and they refuse to believe what it is that Jesus is telling them is about to take place. This prophetic word of events that will transpire just a few hours from this moment, they don't believe. They've been with Jesus for years now. They've been traveling around Israel with him. They've seen him perform miracles. They've heard him teaching the crowds. They've benefited from his direct instruction to them personally. And while they've heard Jesus say multiple times that a time of betrayal and death was coming for him, these 11 men with him that night on the Mount of Olives do not believe that their friend, their teacher, their master would be taken from them that night. Nor could they believe that they would betray him and deny him as he says they will do. The text continues in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, My betrayer is at hand. The prayer of Jesus this night is so intense in this garden because Jesus knows what is about to transpire, even though his disciples, his closest friends, do not. They lack understanding about what was taking place that night, and it led them to complacency, to giving in to their physical desire to rest instead of obeying and doing what Jesus had asked them to do in staying watch in praying with them. As Jesus goes to the Father in earnest prayer, he speaks about a cup, this cup that he is about to drink. He's referring to the events that are about to take place, the price that Jesus is about to pay, and he acknowledges in this prayer that it is all part of God's divine plan. For this to make any sense to us, you must understand this tonight. Sin is real and it is serious. People today talk as if there is no such thing as sin. There's just preferences. Some people prefer things a certain way. Other people prefer them a different way. Some people choose to live one way. Some people choose to live a different way. But our society is quick to tell us that those different choices are equal. There's nothing better or worse. There's nothing moral about one. Moral, morality is relative in our society. Sin is not a real thing, according to this world that we should think about or consider at all, but the Bible tells us a very different story. What the Bible reveals to us is that there is a God who is the creator of all things, and he has established what is right 
and what is wrong. And sin is the rejection of what he says is good and right. And that is a serious matter. To live contrary to what God says is not just an alternative lifestyle. It is an act of rebellion against the most holy God. To belittle him and ignore his words is not inconsequential. It is to offend and to despise the most glorious and sovereign being that exists. Sin and rebellion rightly earn wrath from God. He's not indifferent to what we do. He's not unaware of what takes place in this world, even in your own life. He knows and sees all of it. And so every sin, every act of belittlement, every act of rebellion against him is met with just and righteous wrath from God towards that sin. And there in that garden all those years ago, Jesus knew that to be true. He knew what was about to come. He knew the weight of sin, and he knows how terrible the wrath of God towards sin really is. So his prayer is intense that night. But his disciples lack that understanding of how important this night truly is. They knew sin was real, but they didn't feel the weight of it as Jesus did that night. And tonight, some of you in this room, you may not even believe that sin is real. You may buy into what our culture says, that it's not sin, it's just preference. It's just difference of opinion. Or you may not even believe that if there is such a thing as sin, that it would really matter much for your life. But I'm sure that most of us in this room do feel weight, the weight of living in this broken world. You have cares, and you have concerns, and you have worries. We're living in a time of global pandemic, There's unrest, there's difficulties around us. I'm sure you feel the weight of those things, but perhaps tonight you don't feel the weight of your sin. And you might be sitting in here tonight, and instead of understanding how significant the moments that we are reading about, the moments we are reflecting upon this evening really are, you might find if you don't understand the weight of your sin that your mind tonight is tempted to drift to other things, to become distracted. Maybe you're tired this evening. Maybe you're not fully engaged. I want to implore you to listen carefully, listen afresh to this message, for it truly is the most important message that you could ever understand because you do have sin. It is real and it is serious. As we continue tonight, listen carefully to this message, for what takes place does matter to you and it will have an effect on your life one way or another. Continuing in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. And then they, the crowd, came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Judas, this man mentioned here, is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the closest people to Jesus, but he was not one of the 11 who have been with Jesus on the Mount of Olives where we picked up the story tonight or here in the garden as Jesus has been praying. Judas had left the group earlier that night. 
After sharing in the Passover meal with the rest of the group, Jesus had revealed at that time he knew what was in Judas's heart and what Judas was about to do that very evening. And so from there, Judas had left to go and betray Jesus. We must realize tonight that Judas had seen the power of God at work in Jesus. He'd been there. He'd seen the miracles. He had heard Jesus' teaching. He'd even been part of a group that Jesus had sent out to do ministry in his name. But Judas didn't truly believe Jesus was who he said he was. Judas looked like all the others on the outside, but his heart was never truly submitted to Jesus as Savior and God. And the reality is that may be some of you in this room tonight. See, the truth we need to wrestle with is that just coming to church, claiming to be a Christian when we fill out a document, even trying to look like a Christian on the outside does not mean that a person is really saved. Looking at Judas should give each one of us pause to examine our own hearts in this place tonight and ask, am I really submitted to Jesus in my life? Do I really believe him to be the Savior and God that he claimed to be? And am I living like he is, or am I just playing at being a Christian, pretending like Judas was? Do not think that just coming to church or being moral or being polite or fitting into this culture that we live in here is enough to save you. No matter what you do on your own, in your own strength, no matter how you look on the outside, It is what is in your heart that truly matters. And anything less than believing and following Jesus as Savior and God is not enough. Judas did not believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so when Judas betrayed Jesus, he betrayed him completely that night, turned him over to those who wanted to kill him. But we also see in that text the first fulfillment of what Jesus had told the other 11 who had been with him that night would happen, what they had denied they would do. When the crowd lays hands upon Jesus to seize him and arrest him, those 11 men react with fear instead of faith. Verses 55 and 56 As the crowd has grabbed him, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. What I want you to know tonight as we look at this story and as the story progresses through what will become much more intense in just hours from this moment, understand tonight Jesus was not a helpless victim on that night. He knew what was taking place and he knew why it was all taking place. The scriptures had foretold this. Jesus himself had foretold this many times. And Jesus' participation in this night was completely voluntary. He went into these moments with full knowledge, motivated by love and grace to undertake and see through what lie ahead of him. And so when Jesus is arrested and the other 11 betray Jesus too by scattering out of fear, by hiding their allegiance to the one they said they would follow even to death, just as Jesus had said they would do, as all of this comes to pass, 
Jesus' night is only beginning. In verse 57, it says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. As Jesus is taken away that night from the garden to this place, he's taken before the religious leaders to undergo what is truly a mock trial. In the next few verses there, it's explained that the leaders had already determined their goal was to find a way to put Jesus to death. And they would do whatever it took to accomplish that goal. The trial was merely a pretext to the end they already knew they were pursuing. They brought out false witnesses. They accused him of crimes he did not commit. They twisted his words, trying to find any possible reason to justify their desire to kill him. But in the midst of all of their questions, in the midst of all of their accusations, in verse 63, we read, but Jesus remained silent. And after some time has gone on, then the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And for the first time, Jesus said to him, you have said so. And I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. At that, the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And the religious leaders, they answered, he deserves death. Don't miss this evening what Jesus is saying, what the leaders rightly understood Jesus was saying in that response. It was plain to them. They understood that when Jesus said he was the son of man and spoke of himself soon being seated at the right hand of power and saying that he would come on the clouds of heaven, Jesus was referring to this powerful prophetic passage from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 that had been known for hundreds of years. He was making this claim that he himself is God Almighty who would fulfill the text. Jesus was saying I am the God who Daniel prophesied was coming to judge from heaven. And though I stand before you, you judging me here now, truly I am the judge of all the earth. When Jesus responded to him, he told the high priest, you have said so in verse 64. And they knew exactly what he was saying. He said, you are right to call me the son of God. That's who I am. But despite that clarity, they knew exactly what he was saying to them. Despite that, they had already decided they did not want to believe that's who Jesus was. They did not want to follow Jesus. They did not want to submit to the things Jesus had been saying. So they accused him of blaspheming God. But Jesus did not commit blasphemy that night. He was telling the truth. Jesus himself is God. And he told them that. Without any shadow of a doubt in their minds, they heard him say, I am God. What that means then is the betrayals of this night, they are not just the betrayal of a good teacher, of a moral man, of a friend betraying another friend. As tragic as any of that would be, this was something more. The betrayals happening that night were the betrayals of the true God himself into the hands of people who had become so twisted by their sins, so evil, that though they were supposed to be the ones leading in loving him and serving him and teaching his ways to the people, these religious leaders had rebelled and rejected and already betrayed God in being so wrapped up in their pursuit of their own power and their own influence and their own darkened understanding. These religious leaders rejected that Jesus was their God 
because they had already betrayed their calling. They had already betrayed what it is they were supposed to be doing and who they were supposed to be. They betrayed the true God who was standing before them. In verse 69, the story continues. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it to them all, saying, I I do not know what you mean. And when he went out into the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your, your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Where we started tonight was Jesus giving that prophecy just hours before these took place. And you remember Peter's emphatic denial, even if I have to die with you, even if everyone else has betrayed you, not me, I'm with you to the end. But what happens takes place just as Jesus said it would. Peter followed at a distance, but when confronted, he denies even knowing Jesus, not just once, not just twice, but three times. The fear of seeing what was happening to Jesus led to fear of what might happen to him if he stood up for Jesus. And Peter denied even knowing him. Maybe some of us need to think about this tonight. There are some in this room, you're not a Christian at all, you don't pretend to be. You're here because someone invited you or or for some reason you thought you would join us this evening and, and I'm glad that you did. You're welcome here. Some of you are Christian on the outside only. You're just playing at this thing. Like Judas, you look like a Christian on the outside, but your heart's not really in this. You're not really submitted to Jesus in this way. But many of us in this room are genuinely Christians, and this text speaks to us just as much as it does to anyone in any other group tonight. To those of us who are genuinely Christians, you need to be aware there's a danger here. The danger that Peter faced that night is a danger that we will face too. There's a temptation in all of us to respond to this world out of fear instead of the full and complete commitment to Christ that we're called to have. We're starting to see the cost of what it might take to follow Jesus, something that we haven't seen before in any of our lifetimes here in this country. This culture is changing. There are people who hate this message that we have gathered to hear tonight, and they are gaining more power and more influence in our nation. And some of us might become tempted as the moments start to get tough to deny Jesus the way Peter did because the cost will become great. And we might get worried about the price we would have to pay if we were to share the message of Christ and call sinners to repentance and faith in him. And so as we reflect on this story tonight, if you're a Christian, I want you to hear this and I want you to build up and be on guard for this temptation because the cost that Jesus himself pays that we're about to see him go through demands of us obedience, and fully following him as king and savior and God. There's no place for fear, as Peter gave into that night. As I've often said, following Jesus is not something 
to play at. It's not something to do half-heartedly. On this night, Jesus has already experienced a great amount of betrayal, betrayed by one of his closest followers. The rest have already betrayed him by scattering out of fear, betraying the promise to stand by him no matter what would come. He's been betrayed by the religious leaders who had a duty to understand who he was, to understand the law, to see him and his claims to be true. They had betrayed him through this mockery of a trial and this death sentence they've given him. And now Peter has further betrayed Jesus out of fear, denying he even knows who he is. In the verses that follow, we find the religious leaders send Jesus off to Pilate. They're hoping that that governmental ruler will affirm and fulfill their desire to see Jesus killed that very night. He will order the execution that they don't have the power to order. Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Neither Pilate nor Herod find any valid legal reason to kill Jesus. They find nothing in Jesus to be worthy of this death sentence. The religious leaders are so intent on pursuing Pilate decides he's willing to have Jesus punished for all the trouble that has been caused this night. He'll have him beaten severely by flogging, but ultimately Pilate would have released Jesus. For Pilate saw what was happening. It was envy, the text tells us, on the part of the religious leaders for Jesus' popularity and his reputation and his works and his teaching. These religious leaders hated Jesus and were simply pursuing something to eliminate one they despised with no real cause. Their unbelief, their hatred was so deep that though Pilate is struggling with what he ought to do, we read in chapter 27, verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ And they all said, let him be crucified. He said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. After all the betrayals Jesus has already experienced, here now he's betrayed by the people as well. This crowd that was gathered there that night surely included many who had just five days before and seen Jesus enter the city and hailed him with hosannas saying, blessed is the one who's come in the name of the Lord. And now here, this crowd includes those people who are calling out, not that he is the one who's come from the Lord, but that he should die by crucifixion. And so Jesus is led. He's taken away that night to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And the Roman soldiers who take him there, they had beaten him and mocked him. The flogging was so severe that his body was so broken and bloody and weak that he couldn't even carry his cross down the road to where they wanted to kill him. When they finally make it there, those Roman soldiers take nails and they drive them through his wrists and through his ankles to fasten him onto this rough wooden cross and they lift him up in the air to be seen and mocked by all. We don't see this means of execution today. But understand tonight how brutal this truly was. Crucifixion was designed to not just execute someone you wanted to see die, it was designed to instill fear and to suppress defiance in those who would observe this means of execution. 
the humiliation and the suffering and the pain and the agony that was endured upon a cross, it was so great that a word had to be developed. The word excruciating came into existence from people watching what was happening in a crucifixion and trying to define that in some way. And Jesus, as he's being crucified upon that cross, has done nothing to deserve it. He truly did not deserve what was happening to him at any point, but Jesus had willingly gone into these moments. He'd gone through all the betrayal, all the suffering, all the pain onto the cross to accomplish the mission that he knew only he could fulfill. He went to his death to do what only he could do. In verses 45 and 46, we read now, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words are a direct quote by Jesus from the first verse of Psalm 22. Jesus says them as he's feeling upon himself the full wrath and price for sin of all his people being put out on him in that moment hanging there. And while he says no more than verse 1, in his mind I'm sure he's reciting this psalm to draw comfort from it, to draw the promise that comes from the final verses, verses 30 to 31 of Psalm 22, tells us that posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the work that Jesus was accomplishing. And this promise at the end of Psalm 22 is fulfilled tonight as we tell of his righteousness and what he has done. Jesus was forsaken so that his people would be accepted. He suffered so that we could be saved. And in verse 50, we read, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Those simple words, that moment there they describe was the most meaningful and impactful moment in all of history. From John's account, chapter 19, verse 30, we learn what that final word that Jesus spoke was, that loud voice, he cried out for all to hear as they stood and watched his death. It was the most beautiful word imaginable for his people to hear. While Jesus hangs on that cross, his final word is to telestai, which means it is finished. It is perfectly accomplished. It's done. And he dies. That moment was the reason Jesus had come from heaven. This is what he had come to do, to get to this point through everything in his ministry, through everything in this night of suffering and betrayal. It was for this moment that he came to die for sinners and to declare, it is finished. He bore the wrath of God towards sin so that his people would be treated not as sinners, getting what they've earned, but rather as sons and daughters being given what we do not deserve. To be treated as his people instead of his enemies. To 
Come and be, Jesus died on the cross, to come and be the perfect and final sacrifice of atonement. And on that cross, as he hangs there, bloody and broken, the mission accomplished, he declares to tell us, it is finished. And what that means for every one of us now no matter what group you came in here tonight a part of, if you are a non-Christian and you know that you're not a Christian, you're not believing in this, or if you're someone who's been pretending for a while to be a Christian and you look like it on the outside, but as you hear these things, your heart is not stirred, your mind is drifting off, or if you came in here tonight as a true Christian, but who may be tempted to live in fear or disobedience to God, there's something here for you to respond to tonight. Because what Jesus did on Good Friday demands a response from all of us. You cannot hear this message, and you cannot understand this message tonight and just leave here the same way you came in. You have to respond in some way to this reality that Jesus Christ is God who came in the flesh. He was perfect and spotless and sinless as he lived upon this earth and he died upon that cross suffering the wrath of God towards sinners so that he could pay for the sins of his people once and for all. You have to respond to this reality. Sitting here tonight, understand you, all of us together, we are broken, sinful, we're in need of mercy from the God whom we have openly defied and rebelled and sinned against countless times in our life. You need this work to cover you if you don't want to spend eternity in hell paying for your own sins. And so the response that we should have tonight is to believe that mercy was won here, that the sins were covered, the price was paid for, that forgiveness comes through this death of Jesus hanging on that cross. By putting your faith tonight in Jesus as Savior and as the true God, that's the response that we ought to have. And you are going to respond one way or the other tonight. You're either going to respond with belief and repentance, which means you will want to turn from your sin and you want to follow Jesus and his ways, or you will respond tonight by rejecting him and walking out of here having heard a story, having heard some guy talk about something for 40 minutes, but that doesn't really matter to you. You will either reject it or you will believe and live in faith, but you will respond. And understand tonight how you respond impacts your eternity. If you leave here tonight without responding in faith that Jesus is who he claimed and did what he said he was doing on that cross, then you leave here tonight in peril. You leave here tonight still captive to your sin, still bound for an eternity in hell because sin is real in your life. And it is serious. And it will be dealt with either by you suffering for all eternity or by the Son of God hanging on a cross saying, to tell us die. For my people, it is finished. I don't want any of you to leave here tonight and suffer the fate that you are headed towards apart from Christ. And so what we're going to do in these next few moments is we're going to meditate upon the meaning and the love that was shown upon the cross of Christ. We're going to sing 
tonight. We have lyrics that will be on these screens behind me, and I'm going to invite each of you to respond to the message in whichever way you need to. Belief for the first time. Belief for the first time for real, because you've been playing at this for a while. Or recommitting your heart, saying, I've drifted from believing in this, and living like this is true. Worship team, if you would come and prepare to lead us. For the next about 10 to 15 minutes, this place will just be filled with song and prayer. We have three songs that we are going to sing tonight, and in these moments, this is your chance. This is a gift of God to you right now for you to receive, to respond to this message of Jesus and the meaning of his death that you have just heard about. And you might be wondering tonight, could God really ever love me? I mean, could my sins really be forgiven? Because preacher, you don't know what my sins are. You don't know some of the things that I've done, where I've been, what I've thought, what I've said, what I've done. Listen, God himself came to die for sinners. And you are not more powerful than him. No one is too far lost for Jesus to save. There's no one in this room who's beyond the reach of his love and the power of his death. No matter how rebellious you've been, no matter how many times you've betrayed him, no matter how many times you have sinned against the Almighty, the cross of Christ offers to every one of us full forgiveness if you will place your faith in him and him alone tonight. When he said it is finished, he meant it. And tonight we can respond and trust him. So these altars here at the front are open. For some of you, there may be needs that you want to bring to the altar to pray through. For some of you, it may just be, I want to go and I want to worship the one who did all this for me. And for some of you, maybe it's responding in belief and faith for the first time ever. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to do that. And I want to do that with you. If you have questions about this, if you don't understand this, if you need help in responding to this, then I'm going to be here at the front and I would love nothing more tonight than to pray with you. In these next few moments, it's your chance to respond rightly. You will respond one way or the other. So I urge you respond by believing and worshiping Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us. Let's sing together. These symbols that we hold in our hands remind us of what we've heard in the gospel and of what was just saying. God the Son took on human flesh to come and die in the place of sinners. And these items are to push you and I towards faith in that. These things are shadows that point to something so much more substantial. The reality of what Jesus did on that Good Friday for us. This meal reminds us of the meal that Jesus took before he went to the garden, before he was betrayed, before he suffered. In Matthew 26, 26, Jesus told the disciples as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And this little wafer that we hold in our hands right now is a symbol of something far greater than just a piece of bread. Amen. He was 
speaking of what he was about to physically endure in going and having his body, a real human physical body like you and I, broken and beaten and suffer for us, ultimately to be killed for our sake. And understand tonight, Christian, the suffering and the pain that he bore on the cross must not be forgotten by us. But it's not just about the physical work that Jesus did. It's about the spiritual work he accomplished on that cross. Taking our sins from us onto himself is what makes his death so powerful and so awe-inspiring for us. This is his body. And if we are in him, this to us speaks of our salvation. Let's take the bread together. After he said that in verses 26 and 27 and 28, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The cross of Jesus Christ was a bloody place. His very life was poured out there on that cross. He hung with a broken body and blood pouring from his wounds as he gave up his perfect, sinless life to be the sacrifice to atone for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And this cup, it holds only juice here tonight, but it is a symbol of something far greater than a drink. It's of the new covenant that was formed by Jesus giving his life, pouring out his blood so you and I could have our sins forgiven. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you tonight for this. For these symbols that you have given us, tangible things we can hold in our hand to remind us of the reality of what you did that Good Friday for us. You bled. You died for my sins. For the sins of your people in this room. And tonight, Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that sacrifice that you have made, for that beautiful word of assurance to tell us that it is finished. I pray we all believe that so much that we would leave this place and live like it is true. We thank you for your great love for us that led to that moment and the work that you accomplished. It's in your beautiful name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. See, the story that we've listened to tonight is not over. The events of Good Friday end with Jesus' death. He's buried in a tomb where dead bodies go. His followers are mourning and weeping on the first Good Friday. But Jesus had made another prophetic promise. Before they went to the Mount of Olives, before he spoke of the things we started with this evening, the very next verse in Matthew 26, 29 reads this. I will tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That means the story is not over with his death because he promised he will again celebrate. He will again eat and drink with his people and celebrate with them. He will be alive with his people in his Father's kingdom. And so we're going to leave here with the invitation to come back on Sunday to hear the rest of the story, to see what Jesus did to prove that that promise he made there would be true just as much as the other promises he made that night.
Would you stand with me this evening? Let me pray one final time as we prepare to leave. Father, we thank you for your great love for us that we sang about this evening. It was your love for us that led to sending your son, Jesus, to voluntarily go through everything we have heard of tonight, to hang and die upon a cross for the forgiveness of sins, our sins. Tonight, we thank you for that. We believe the promise. It is finished. There's no more sacrifice to make. There's no more work we need to do. We believe. We put our faith and our trust in you, Lord Jesus, that you have accomplished it all. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us would leave this place with that confidence ringing true in our hearts, with our affections firmly set on you, a desire to worship you and to love you because you have so greatly loved us. We thank you for the gift of gathering together tonight, for the chance to sing, the chance to worship you, the chance to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would go with us out of here. And over the next two days, Lord, these things would become so precious to us. That as we come together Sunday morning, I pray we pack this place out to sing exuberantly to you because we know the story is not finished. We know right now you hear this prayer because you did not stay dead. We love you. And we thank you for this time, and we ask you to bring us back together. In your beautiful name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.